Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 6th, 2015. This is episode 1550 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday, so we're going to take your questions, comments, concerns, ideas, thoughts. Email to me at jack at com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. That's where to send those emails to. And we'll do the best we can for you to, to uh, help get you an answer to those questions or respond to your comments or a news story or what have you. Please remember, I get hundreds of emails a day. There's no way I can possibly get them all on the air. I do read them all. There is a formula to get your email read and considered. The formula is as follows. Put TSPC in the subject line, TSPC. Tango Sierra Papa Charlie in the subject line, and then question for Jack, comment for Jack, idea for Jack, thought for Jack, whatever. And that'll help me make sure that it gets yanked out of the spam monster box if it goes in there, and a lot of times it does. And uh, then make your point, or give me your idea, or ask me your question in one sentence or less, okay? Yes, it can be done in one sentence or less, two sentences or less, really. Hit the return key a couple times, and then consider giving me additional information. That just makes it go faster, so I can scan things quicker. Anyway, before I do uh, get into your email today, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. I love Western Botanicals because uh, I'm a person that does my very best to stay away from uh, drugs uh, of any kind, whether they're over-the-counter or prescription, it doesn't matter. I always try to go to anything from a essential oil to an herb uh, or to a formulation or something like that that's made up of herbs and other things before I go and turn to the pharmacy. And the reason why is I like to do things as natural as possible, and I like to do things as safely as possible, and I like to do things with as little side effect as possible. And herbs do that for me. It may not be what works for you, but it is what works for me. Now, I've said this before, but if I have a yield sign on my spleen, I'd like to go to a surgeon now, please. If I have cancer, I'm going to go get the best modern medicine care that I can get. I'd probably still augment that with herbal therapies and, and things like mushroom therapy, believe it or not, as well. Um, but the point here is, if it's herbal and it's legal, they have it at Western Botanicals, where real people that really care about you pick up the phone and answer your calls and do their best to help you. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. And remember, they are one of our biggest supporters of the Members Brigade giving their premium membership away for free. It's a $50 membership you get for free, and that gives you 25% off everything they sell. That one benefit alone pays for your MSB, and if you use a lot of herbals like I do, it can make your MSB profitable all by itself. Next up today is JM Bullion. Um, we're going to talk about downward class migration today. It's a, a phrase I believe I've coined and what that actually means is the value of being middle class is going down. While the people around you keep telling you the middle class is shrinking, shrinking, they don't even understand what's happening. The true long, slow economic emergency in this country is about the devaluation of your labor, the devaluation of your property while you pay higher taxes on it, the devaluation of your money while you pay higher taxes on it, your access to money. All of these things are being impeded right now. 
A way to ensure your wealth for the long term is to put 5-10% to of your net wealth into silver and gold. I recommend JM Bullion for you to be able to do just that. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. They also do a discount for the Members Brigade, so that's pretty cool as well. Uh, next up, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you don't know what that is because you're new around here, that's how you support the show. It's $50 a year or $5 a month, your choice. A couple other frequencies in there you can pay at. You get discounts to over 40 vendors. It's actually closer, I think, to 60 vendors at this point. Uh, you get a lot of other really cool uh, content and materials. You get over $150 worth of eBooks the day you sign up. You can download them. They're yours to keep forever. It's my way of creating a win-win situation for the members of this audience to be able to help support the show and get discounts on things they're probably going to buy anyway. Check it out today. Go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on Members, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and First Responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount. Email me before and not after you join with service discount TSPC in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you that discount code to thank you for your service. Anyway, with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1550 because the episode's 1550. And I have the Gazette, the first newspaper. Then I have, predictably, Nostradamus writes his first almanac. And next, Sweden falters in its foothold on Finland. Um, all of these are good. I'll just mention again Nostradamus real quick, that this is when Nostradamus writes down the first things that people will later call his quatrains of prophecy and his first almanac. More follows after that. Uh, there's some really interesting parts of Alex Shrugs might take in there about the word prophecy, and I think that would be worth reading today um, if you want to know more about that and what prophecy is and is not. In reality, also, Sweden falters in its foothold on Finland has a lot to do with the world as we know it today. But I'm going to read the Gazette, the first newspaper, because I think there's a little factoid in here I just think is kind of cool. Before this time, the daily or weekly news was distributed via a word of mouth by eavesdroppers. Eavesdroppers, remember, are the people that t tell gossip at the, the, under the eave at the windows of the houses. We learned that in another segment. By, or by royal proclamations posted in the public square. This year, Venetian printers are producing a few sheets of throwaway news they will sell for a small coin called a gazetta. Hmm. It is worth about a penny and a half. These penny papers are scorned because they're low price and ubiquity, yet people buy them like they do modern-day gossip rags. The idea of printing newspapers filled with important facts will not occur to printers until the American Civil War, when they will notice a dramatic increase in sales whenever they print more or less accurate war news, such as casualty numbers, rather than the usual, our side is fighting for all that is good and their side is biting off the heads of live puppies. You've heard that riff a million times. My take by Alex Shrugged. Internet news sites such as the Drudge Report are denigrated because they are not fact-checked. But recent news coverage of the German Wings plane crash is no better. The so-called professional reporters run with, quote, sources from the inside the investigation, end quote. That means press releases that wish to change the focus of the news coverage. These sources said the data recorder was destroyed on impact, a device designed to survive impact with a mountain at high speed, the plane, not the mountain. Yet they found a cell phone chip and a video recording that survived. So where's the video? The news media should be treated with the same skepticism that one uses when reading the Inquirer. You know, the guys who uncovered uh, the story of a presidential candidate who was shooping his video photographer... <laughs> <laughs> while his wife was dying of cancer. The news is schmooze. That is Yiddish for idle talk. 
maybe valuable, maybe not. Um, yeah, I agree. I also, in defense of Drudge, Drudge doesn't really comment on anything. The Drudge Report mostly is a list of links to what other publications are publishing. Right, so it's not that Drudge doesn't ever comment on anything, but the majority of what's there is just links to other stuff. And you know, I I kind of understand that because a lot of times I'm covering a news story, and I'll tell you such and such happened. And despite my best efforts to always sniff out bullshit, occasionally I'll get taken by a news story. There's a report that the following things occurred. I'll say, well, those things must have occurred. Here's what I think about that. A week later, we'll find out those things did not occur. And I think you have to look at something that comes out of the news media with, it may have occurred, or it may not have occurred. I think we, we're at a point now where we have to look at everything that way, that the the concept that journalists are honest is, is bullshit. And then the other thing we have to understand when we look at anything coming out of the media today is, there's a lot of really great journalists out there that are part of the mainstream journalism world that can't report what they know. Um, I've talked to several journalists who said that they quit their, you know, their respectable, respectable, respectable journalistic jobs because of things they would find out that they were just told, nope, can't print that, nope, can't print that. And these are not things like, you know, that, that, that threaten the security and safety of the United States of America. It's just that there's about six companies that control all the media and they let, you know, what they don't want out and you don't do it or you're fired. But the old school media is dying. It really is. But they have one strong toehold left. And that is that many of the sources of this information will not talk to people who are just a blogger or something like that. There's the, the heroes of the blogger world that can get information that, that you know maybe even mainstream media can't get yet. Um, but a lot of that's more in the entertainment gossip world that this Gazette thing was about. But that's changing, too. And I think what you're going to see is more and more sources of information. The problem is going to be to be able to get through and figure out, well, what of this is real? Because just because something's alternative media, as Alex Jones has proved many times, doesn't mean that it can be trusted. Um, often the fact can be trusted. The following is occurring, or the following has occurred. The problem that most alternative journalists have, then, is they have a specific agenda and perception bias, and they use it to write a narrative that what they expect to happen is indeed happening. So it's not that the underlying report is, is, is BS. It's that in a, a 500-word article, the underlying report of what happened is 30 to 50 words, And the rest of it is all the bullshit about what it supposedly means. Uh, for instance, all of the sensationalistic coverage of the thing we talked about on Friday, Operation Jade Helm, it's a prelude to martial law, because we all know you use special forces and Navy SEALs to enact martial law. Just come on. Anyway, um, that's my take there. But my, my biggest thing that I kind of liked out of this is I never knew where the term Gazette came from. You know, the Daily Gazette or whatever. I had no idea it's because the original first newspaper that was ever printed and circulated was purchased with a coin called a Gazetta. So now you know. Maybe someday on Jeopardy that could make you a lot of money. I don't know. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I got an email from a lot of people about this guy that was beaten on a Metrolink train 
um, in St. Louis. And I'm not even going to read the article to you. I'll link to one of the many articles about this. And at that article, you can actually click over and see a, a video somebody shot with an iPhone uh, this, of this poor guy getting his face punched in. And what happens is a, a, a group of, of three young black men approach like the only white guy, it looks like from the picture I'm seeing from the surveillance camera anyway, on uh, the Metrolink in St. Louis. And the first young guy says to him, can I use your cell phone? And the guy says, of course, no, which is probably smart because your cell phone's leaving if you give it to him. You can tell the way these guys are acting and carrying on that they're, they're up to no good. Um, they, are, they then ask the man, What he thinks about Michael Brown, uh, the Michael Brown decision and, you know, the cop that shot him and all that stuff like that. And the guy basically says, I hadn't thought about it very much. And instead of saying probably what he thinks, he does couch his response by basically just trying to avoid the, like, look, let's not talk about this. I don't, I don't know. Right. So what happens is these three guys keep their posturing and their bullshit up long enough. And you can, you start to realize what's going to happen. They're going to attack this guy. And what they're doing is they're wait they know the stops coming up. So they're waiting till it's just a few seconds before the train stops, and then the kind of the, the ringleader of the bunch just punches this guy multiple times in the face. At least one of the other two individuals reached in and kind of popped him once, and as soon as the train stops, they haul ass off the train like the cowardly pieces of shit that they are. Well, I, most of what I've heard about this is this is why you should conceal carry, and that was my first response too. And when my wife was the one that actually told me about this before, I, I got all the emails on it. I said, that's, that is why you should be concealed carrying, because that guy should have had his head blown off the second he put his hands on him. And she said, well, what would you have said, and what would you have done in that situation if you were not carrying? And the answer is, I would have done the same thing whether I was carrying or not, because even though if I was attacked, I'm totally willing to put a canoe through this guy's skull. I, I really am. Um... I don't want to. I don't want any of the things that go along with that. I don't want somebody uh, in misery because even if their son of a bitch of a little son deserved his head blown off, that that happened. I don't want any parent to have to bury their child. Um, if it happens because of shit like this, so be it. But I don't want it to happen. I don't want the legal ramifications. I don't want a possible riot because I shot somebody. What would I have said? I would have bit my tongue. And what I would have said to these guys, because I could tell what they were doing, is, you know what, that son of a bitch and cop should be in prison for the rest of his life in an attempt to defuse the situation. And people would say, well, isn't that backing down? Okay, I'm the only white guy on a train full of people. Uh, right there, I've already got a bad situation. You can say whatever you want about that being racist, but not a single person lifts a finger to help this guy when this happens. And people are laughing and chanting and being a bunch of dicks about it. And if not, and the best response that anybody gives is to simply not pay attention, right? There is no attempt to mitigate this by anybody else. And you know that's going to be the case in this situation. You know no one's going to help you. You're outnumbered three to one. You have no idea if these guys are armed. You know they're looking for a fight. They're, they're, they're posturing. They're doing the monkey dance. So at that point, I'm going to do what I can to defuse the situation. I'm actually more likely to try to defuse the situation if I'm armed than if I'm not. And the reason being is, as the guy with the gun that knows if this guy attacks me, I'm going to kill him, from a standpoint of just simple morality, 
I am now in the position of strength. I now have the ability to respond in a way this guy does not understand. And if I bait him into the fight, not only is that wrong, okay, but it's very possible that legal authority would go, well, Mr. Spirico, did you know you had a gun? How are you going to answer that? No, I, I forgot all about it. And I just remembered when he hit me that I had one. And, no, right? You know, So you knew you had a gun, yeah? So you're on surveillance here. People are videoing this. And, and this guy asked you this question. You're agitated toward him? So you were baiting him in. And then when he hit you unarmed, you shot him. That's not the, that's not the place I want to be on a witness stand. Okay? What I want to be is I've done everything I can, and then I was assaulted, and then you get your ass shot for assaulting me. Don't assault me. That, that's, that's where, if I ever have to shoot somebody, that's where I want to be. Now, I'll tell you another thing, and it's easy to be an armchair quarterback here. So let's just mitigate everything I say with that knowledge. But when I look at the way this went down and where the guy is sitting, Every time a person, this is just for your own self-protection and your own ability to fight back. Every time a person is in a position where they're willing to strike somebody sitting down, they always do it the same way. They always do it, absolutely always do it. Whichever is their strong side, they come forward with that lead and they step onto their, their lead foot and they throw a punch. And when they throw that punch... And, and that's what these punks always do. They get like they're in a real fight with a guy sitting down not fighting back, right? When they go to throw that punch, about 80 to 85% of their weight goes onto their lead knee. A person sitting down that leans back a little bit so that punch that's coming in can be mitigated and just throws the foot out and kicks that knee right underneath the, the, the kneecap. When that leg has that weight on it and that kick snaps out like that, you don't have to be good at it. You just have to be accurate. That leg will hyperextend, and that person's not standing on that leg for at least 10 minutes. That guy's going down. It's a, in, in fighting, it's a dirty move. I'm talking about like sports fighting. It's, it's, it's not acceptable anywhere to, 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 to do that kick into that spot because it's so dirty. Guess what? On the street, I don't give a shit. And his boys would have drug his ass off of that, that damn place if it was me. Hopefully with a busted knee versus a, a hole in his head. But the bigger point here is instead of the bravado stuff, is that when you're in these situations, without looking weak, it's always best to try to defuse the situation. So... If you would have been like in that same situation and been like, you know, all mousy, like, you know, I think the, the cops should be in jail. It might be seen through, but it's also seen as no matter what you're saying, you're weak. But if the response, and that's what happened to this guy. When he, I mean, and the guy didn't do anything wrong, but it's about whether or not you're going to be attacked or not. And how, if you are attacked, how likely are you to survive the attack? I'm talking about surviving here. I mean, this should have never happened, obviously. The other people on this subway are, to me, are equivalent scum to the three scum that did this. If you were on that subway and you didn't do shit to help this guy, you're a piece of shit. You're a piece of shit. And you deserve whatever happens to you when nobody helps you. All right? So just to be clear, I'm not putting the guy down. I'm just saying that... When the response would have been something like, I think the son of a bitch and cop should be in prison for the rest of his life. That says a couple of messages. One, I agree with you. right? So I've tried to meet you halfway. Two, I'm not taking this shit lying down. You're not intimidating me. right? I'm diffusing the situation. I'm not being intimidated. This guy looks intimidated. I don't blame him. It's very intimidating. Three people. Again, you know if they're armed. 
They got guns. They got knives. Who the hell knows? But these situations, there's never always the right answer. It's not like you can know what to do, but you, you do want to... The way I put it in the show notes today is sometimes it's not a good idea to speak your mind or even half of it. Sometimes it's better to give, if it's only a verbal thing, to give the person what they want. Well, then you've backed out or whatever. No, what you've done is you, you're not going to the ER to have your face sewn shut, okay? This guy ended up busted up a little bit. This guy was a punk. He really didn't know what he was doing. You can see when he's throwing punches, he's not really a fighter. He's some street thug moron who would get his clock cleaned by anybody with half of a, a skill as a fighter. I mean, this is a guy, if it was just him, and this guy came at me, I'd pick this, 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 this piece of crap up, and I would choke slam him into a wall and let the wall do the work. I mean, this guy is not like some Muhammad Ali guy or some kind of crap like this or some MMA fighter. He's a sorry-ass street thug bully that recognized someone that was easily intimidated and still needed the assistance and the backup of two more sorry-ass piece-of-shit thugs. All right, that's what these people are. Now, here's the other thing. There's a picture of this piece of shit on the surveillance camera. Clear picture of his face, clear picture of the clothes he's wearing. There are probably at least a hundred people that have seen this picture that know exactly who this piece of shit is that won't say who this piece of shit is. All of those people are pieces of shit, too. And I'll tell you what that teaches you. In our world today, there are a lot of people out there who are really wonderful people. And there are an awful lot of people out there that are pieces of shit. And the pieces of shit are the ones you got to pay attention for. So, this is another thing. There's no doubt that this man should be able to ride public transportation that he pays taxes to pay for. But is it smart? Maybe it's his only choice. I don't know. I'm not second-guessing the guy. But is it smart to be there alone? Is it smart to be there alone? Hmm. And what's the solution to this? Maybe we'll find one in future feedback today. But I, I guess my biggest thing here, guys, is I know a lot of us, we train. We know how to look after ourselves. We carry weaponry. We carry other defensive means. And we're prepared. We're prepared for intervention. We're prepared for self-defense. When you do that, there's a lot of a mental trigger that says, no one's going to get me, no one's going to put me down, no one's going to make me compromise. You need to be the first to compromise when you're armed. Or when you're not. Because both of them could end up in survival situations you don't want to be in. Fighting for your freedom or fighting for your life or both. Always try to defuse the situation. Let's take another one. I also just got an email just this second from Josh Sloan. Um, about the Zello meetup at the Perma Ethos Farm in Elijah Springs in Walton, West Virginia. This is going to be April 17, 18, and 19. They still have six slots open. It's okay to come in a day early and leave a day late. Uh, you can jump on Zello for more information, and there is a registration link that I'll put in today's show notes. So Josh has asked me to do that, so of course I'm happy to. So there's about 3,000 trees to be planted up in West Virginia. If you're in the area, you want to meet a bunch of really Really awesome people, and see what Elijah's Spring Perma Ethos Farm is all about. Get on out to the Zello meetup again. You can just jump on our Zello channel. You can find links for that on the website, and I'll put the registration link in today's show notes for the Zello uh, meetup. Also, uh, I have like 20 people registered for my work with Jack uh, weekend. 
um, this Saturday. I am going to take that uh, that opportunity down today. I'm going to leave it up for a few more hours after the show, and then I'm, I'm going to close that one because we're pretty much at a capacity limitation with vehicles and people at this point. But uh, this should be fun, and uh, so if you're in this area, you might want to cruise on over here. What I actually want to talk about next is why so many people are confused about the economic uncertainty going forward and waiting for the big economic crash that's not coming the way that people are waiting for it for. But before I get into that and explain to you why it's all happening around you right now, and it's, it's, it's a, like what I call, a, like the, you know, we have the oil thing, it's a long, slow emergency. Um, This is a long, slow economic emergency. It's what I've called an economic black hole, and you're sitting in the event horizon. But before I, I, I go into that a little deeper, I want to talk about it, it kind of with a bridge and what's going on with Russia and oil prices, etc. Um, this is on Zero Hedge, which is one of those blogs where you read it, and then you have to draw your own conclusions because it's very much an angled toward one thing or the other. Uh, but this is by Tyler Durden, uh, and it's called Unpatriotic Goldman Dares to Suggest Buy Russian Bonds. On the scale of unpatriotic things to suggest, there's only one thing worse than tax inver inversion for, what Amer for an American to do. Suggest something positive about Russia, Russian markets, or the Russia economy. So perhaps it's ultimately ironic that none other than Goldman doing God's work sacks suggests Russian bonds are both cyclically and structurally underpriced via Goldman Sachs. Russian bonds are both cyclically and structurally underpriced. The main outlier both cyclically in terms of what the market is pricing more in the long run is Russia. Cyclically, we expect a deep contraction in domestic demand that will allow the CBR to cut rates sharply. Longer term, we think there are good reasons to believe that the neutral rate should be priced lower than rather than higher due to tighter financial conditions and the destabilization of inflation expectations in December in Russia. The slowdown of the economy is likely to be quite severe and sharper than we had originally thought in late autumn. Wait, while wage growth has already fallen close to zero in nominal sequence, blah, 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 right? Typical shit that comes out of a financial thing. When, and if you don't really work on your financial IQ and learn all of that stuff, it sounds like blah, 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 blah. Why is Jack reading this? Okay, let me give you the, the, the short version. Yeah, the Russian economy is screwed. Uh, but it's not as screwed as bad as we said it was screwed. So we've artificially forced the ruple lower than it should be with the smear campaign that we're now admitting that we did. And due to that, the long-term outlook of the Russian economy is actually better than the short-term speculation. So investing in Russian bonds might not be a bad idea right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what, when you read the whole thing, it comes down to that now. Uh, and this cyclical thing, right? So cyclical means something that runs in cycles, okay? So what's cyclical about the Russian economy? The number one thing is oil prices. See, when oil goes low, the Russian economy is screwed. When royal oil goes high, the Russian economy booms. That's how it works. So what's more cyclical than oil? Do you really think oil is going to stay at the price that it's at right now for the next five years? Or do you think it's going to go up and cost more? What do you think is going to happen? Hmm, let me think. Right, We have this big 
shale boom in the United States. But it's more about nat gas than it is about oil. We do have the oil coming from the tar sands, but Canada is getting punched in the face due to oil, oil prices because even though they have lots of oil available from the tar sands, it costs a lot to produce, and it ain't worth producing unless oil goes to a certain price. So what does that mean? That means that both of these countries are in kind of stall modes right now, and They're, they're different sectors laying people off as a result of it. And here in the United States, that's true as well. But no one really expects that oil is going to stay cheap forever. And all of the infrastructure is in place, and they can start making more money with the oil when the oil becomes worth more money anytime they want to. So if you were holding Russian bonds on a five-year bond, it just about guarantees you right now that you have a reasonable chance of a significant return of investment because over the next five years, somewhere in that five-year period, we should see a significant return to the value of oil. And therefore, you have both a very high interest rate that's being paid on the bonds right now to attract money because they're screwed and can't get anybody to buy any of their bonds, and the appreciation in the underlying currency as the currency regains its strength during the return of the oil market. But Jack, the end of the world is coming! Ah, You're in the end of the world right now if you mean it by economics. It's already happening. These things still are going to go on inside the event horizon for a long time. Got it? So, is Jack saying run out and buy a bunch of Russian bonds right now? Uh-uh. No, 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 no time out. What I'm saying is that Goldman Sachs is saying to buy Russian bonds because they're currently undervalued and paying excessively high interest due to a more pessimistic outlook to the Russian economy's future than is in, than, than exists in reality. That the, the bonds are priced as though the bottom of the Russian economy has not been hit yet. And Goldman's saying even if they didn't hit bottom yet, They're in the, they're in the bottom area. Like, you're never gonna pick the perfect bottom. So this is the, the bottom side bell curve before the return of the, the cyclical cycle. So R Goldman Sachs is advising the purchase of Russian bonds right now. Jack Spierko's advising you not to buy shit you don't understand. Um, you know, because that's a bad idea. Alright? So that's a decision between you and your financial advisor. I'm just telling you what Goldman's saying and what all the mumbo-jumbo means when you come out the other end. Since the global economy runs on oil and since oil will eventually rebound and since the Russian economy runs on oil, when the oil prices rebound, the Russian economy is going to rebound and therefore these bonds are right now underpriced in a good buy. That's what Goldman's saying. Now, what does that have to do with the, the long-term economics of the world and specifically the United States? And of course... What we're going to talk about in regards to that, again, that I mentioned earlier, is downward class migration. Um, and before I read this, let me explain what my term, downward class migration, is and why it's different from slipping from the middle class or erosion of the middle class or falling out of the middle class or all the words that the mainstream media doesn't have a clue what's going on uses to describe this phenomenon. What they're talking about, and I have a whole video series on this you can watch if you want to learn more, but what they're talking about is, let's say we have a guy named Tom, and Tom uh, grows up in a middle-class family with a middle-class parenthood, you know, parents who have a nice home in the suburbs, and blah, 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 the American dream, white picket fence, 2.3 kids, dog in the backyard, et cetera, et cetera, ignosium, blah, 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 blah. 
Tom grows up, and Tom either fails to get into the middle class, he never rises up in income to the station that his parents had, or near it, or slightly above it, or slightly below it, or anything like that. Or Tom does eventually get out of college, or get off his ass and get a job, or whatever it is, works really hard, gets a job at the steel mill, builds a middle class lifestyle, and then gets laid off and falls out. This is what the media is talking about here. To me, this is a minor problem. And the reason it's a minor problem is if that is what's going on, then it is always possible for the person to have financial resurrection and return to the middle class. What they don't understand is that it's becoming less and less meaningful to economically be listed as middle class. And the number required to have the middle class lifestyle continues to go up while wages stagnate. In other words, the entire class structure itself It's sliding down in what it means. What does what you have access to? How much money you have? And it's part of this long, slow erosion. It is the snake eating itself from the tail up. So let me read you the article. The article is on the Huffington Post, where they are looking for social justice over this. I guess <laughs> the middle class has gotten smaller in every state since 2000. America's middle class is shrinking in every state. A new analysis by the Pew Charitable Trust Stateline blog shows that the percentage of middle class household defined as those earning between 67% and 200% of the state's median income Yawn. dropped in every U.S. state between 2000 and 2013. Medium income also fell in most states during that period. And they're starting to get it. Wisconsin, Ohio, North Dakota, Nevada, and New Mexico have some of the largest declines in middle-class households over 13 years span, while Wyoming, Idaho, Alaska, and Hawaii suffered the least. The decline of the American middle class is unsurprising by now. The middle class has seen its wages change little since the turn of the millennium, when high-earning individuals keep making more and more each year, and middle-class wages are a long way from catching up to the rising costs of child care, tuition, and hospital visits. See? It's evil Republicans. Wait. Haven't the Republicans been in charge? Oh, yeah, okay. Anyway, and nearly a decade after the peak of the devastating bubble, housing is once again growing increasingly unaffordable to many. State lines analysis showed that the greater percentage of households in many states are paying at least 30% of total income on housing, a widely used standard for housing affordability. Okay, so that's the article, and then they have this map they've pulled in with an iframe that shows you the uh, the decline in the middle class. So let's look at Texas, for instance. Share of households that are middle class, 45.2% in Texas, but in 2000, 47.8 were. Median income, $51,704. dollars 2000 inflation adjusted would have been $55,019. So what they're saying is that you would have made, you're making less today if you're making the median in Texas. Share of households spending at least 30% of income on their housing. If you're, if you're writing a mortgage check that's for at least 30% of your, uh, of your, your, your income, where are you at? In 2000, 26% were. In 2013, 31% are. So exactly what they said, everything went up. Now, as bad as that is, when you go to some place like, you know, Wisconsin, it's much worse. 49% were middle, or 48% middle class now, 54% or, uh, 54% were middle class back then. Median income has slided from 60,000 inflation adjusted down to 51,000. 
are paying uh, 30% of their income on housing versus 24% in the year 2000. And you can go through and look at you know, other places like Michigan and, and what have you and see some of the worst and some of the better performing places. But in the end, the numbers are all strikingly similar. And it, it seems the same. It's like, oh, but all these good states down in the South that are right to work don't have unions, uh, they're doing great. Well, uh, and all these you know, socialist utopias in like New York and they're doing terrible and they're doing about the same they're doing about the same there's a higher number of people spending more than 30% in New York but that's because property is more expensive in New York there's this very similar thing happening all over the country I mean even like some of the best performing states like Alaska you still went from 53 down to 51 you know your income still dropped the percentage of people actually stayed the same in Alaska that are paying 30%. But let me tell you something. I think if you're paying 30% of your income toward housing, you were spending way too much on housing. We've used that number as a threshold that will allow people to do this. I mean, they should. Um, yeah, the, what we have here is is very different from the narrative that, that the media is weaving. Now, understand that the media is by and large... A, a liberal left-leaning group, especially the Huffington Post, though they do have some conservative bloggers over there to try to create the illusion of balance. But the reality is the media in general has been running with this narrative. I mean, the MSN, the, the you know, CNN, MSNBC, all of these people have been running with this narrative for years now because the narrative they're spinning you um, – creates the dynamic necessary to motivate you to be angry with rich people. Right? So that's what they want. It's all the rich people's fault. It's not that the economy is actually faltering. It's that more and more is going to the rich people versus the middle class people who are the good people. And the rich people are the evil bastards. Okay. Again, I, I have to remind you of some things. There is rich and there is power elite rich. Okay, there is rich and there is beyond your wildest dreams wealthy. Those are two different worlds. Rich in this country is somebody that makes a couple hundred thousand dollars a year would be viewed as rich in much of the country. Some places not as much. But a person makes two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, invests wisely, ends up worth a few million dollars at retirement, considered wealthy, rich. Um, no, no. Not when it comes to people that control the wealth. Not when it comes to people that live a completely different, in a completely different world than you do. Those people are the people whose names you will never know. They're the oligarchs. They're the plutocracy. They're the people that actually tell the people on things like the Federal Reserve Board what they're actually going to do. They're the ones that buy your congressmen and your senators. That's the rich in this, this dynamic of the people that have all the power, all the control, all the consolidation of wealth, etc. And you're never going to get what they have. They're never going to give it to you. And the whole system that makes you think you can, you can equalize the playing field with them is their system that they put in place to control you. You're playing their game. There's an old saying, something to the effect, if you ever take a man's bet, that he can make a white mouse crawl out of his left shoe, climb up on his shoulder, jump across to yours, and whistle Dixie in your left ear and are foolish enough to take the bet, you will soon hear the harsh tune of Dixie in your ear. And, and the reason that that is a, is a saying is because when the person controls the game, 
They never make a bet unless they know they're going to win, or it's a loss that sets up a bigger bet that they know they're going to win. You don't play the other man's game. An honest man recognizes a rigged game and seeks his entertainment elsewhere. Okay, That's this game. But in this game, they have created this dynamic that the guy down the street from you that lives in the gated community with a three-quarter of a million dollar house is rich with quotes around. He's the evil bastard stealing from you. And if that's the case, then this whole dynamic is exactly how it's presented, but that ain't the case. The real case, and this is where everybody's waiting for, like, I don't know if I should buy a house, Jack, because the economic collapse could come. Well, then you better buy a house now. Okay, because if the whole economy collapses to shit, you're either repossessed and back to not having a house, which is where you're at now. Your credit ain't going to be worth shit anyway if the whole economy collapses, because nobody's going to have any credit anyway, right? And you won't be able to buy a house, but there's a possibility that even in a collapse, you'll be able to keep your house. Who knows? If 90% of homes go into default, they can't repossess all that shit. Who are they going to sell it to? They've got to figure something out. Right? So stop waiting on, like, living your freaking life so, well, I'm gonna wait till the world ends and then I'm gonna live. Bullshit. Build a business, get off your ass and get to work now and you better do it because this is what's going on. The entire value of the country is being raped by the power elite. It is being siphoned off slowly. Okay? This is the old analogy that's, by the way, not true. You know, think of you the frog in the pot of water and turn the heat up slowly. He'll just sit there and die and won't get out. Bullshit. Amphibians thermoregulate. He'll get out. But this is that analogy if it was true. You are slowly being simmered alive. Your wealth is being taken from you slowly. You are being bled like a matzai cow. Leaving you just enough blood so you can walk to the next place, eat a little grass and be bled again. The only thing you can do now is go feral and escape. That means building a business. That means increasing your income. That means getting very smart about how you manage your money. That means doing anything and everything you can to put yourself in the most optimum financial position that you can for yourself, for your future, and for your family to pay off as much debt as possible, to not be sitting on evil, rotten, disgusting, miserable debt. I did a show about that. There's good debt and there's evil debt. And there's bad debt. Bad debt's debt, like, sucks, but gotta do it for right now. Evil debt should be stabbed in the heart, and buried under the ground, and killed, and banished. And you should throw garlic on it, and shoot it with silver bullets, and every other mythical thing that you can come up with to kill the evil dead, right? You gotta do it. Blow the head off of it, whatever, like a zombie. It's gotta die. And then there's, there is legitimately good debt. Debt on real property, if it's done smartly, if it's serviceable. And if it, you have a, an extraction period and an exit strategy, these are the ways that you win the game. You can't play their game, so you have to play your own game. Your own game is to carve out your own little world and drive your costs through the floor while you drive your revenue as high as possible. And live the most optimum life you can on the least amount of Federal Reserve notes as possible. So that doesn't mean live like a pauper. It means determine how to do as much for yourself as you can without having a recurring cost associated with it. Develop your future now. Because what it means to be middle class 
is eroding. It's not people falling from the middle class. See, they're actually standing on it here without realizing it. These are people that are standing on a guy saying, we have to help people. The guy's going, get off my back. You're crushing me. And they're going, it's poor guys like this guy here. We got to do something for him. Get off my back. Look at the poor guy. Get your fat ass off his back and let him get up. That's what they're, that's, they're, that's how much they're tap dancing on the issue. What they said is, a new analysis by the Pure Charitable Trust State Line blog shows the percentage of middle class households defined as those earning between 67 and 200% of the state's median income. Okay. That means you're, you're earning at least 67% of what averages. That's how you know you're middle class. Now, if you're measuring things this way, there, there's, there's, there's a, a, a law of mathematics that, that basically would allow you to never truly uncover the problem. Because as the average wage stagnates or falls, and it does fall, remember if it stagnates, it falls due to inflation. Okay? As that occurs, and the median's lower, what's necessary to be 67% or more of that goes lower as well. So if, 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 if minimum wage was a dollar and you had to make, and that was the median wage, let's say medium wage and minimum wage were the same. That was the average people made. It's never going to be that way, but let's just say it is. But it was a dollar an hour. To, to be middle class in that system, you have to make a dollar 67 an hour. See how simple that is? If, if minimum wage in that system or median wage in that system is $10 an hour, okay, right, you have to make $16.70. Okay? So the more that baseline number is eroded down, the lower the differential of the spread in real money. So that's like they're just all over this and they can't see it. They can't see the forest for the trees. The whole damn thing is falling. And the people that don't look like they're falling are paying for their lifestyle in money from 20 years ago. Okay, here's what I mean. The people that are largely unaffected by this are people that bought their house 20 years ago. Do you understand that? Their, their tax assessments have been somewhat controlled. Because even though your taxes go up every year with property taxes, they, they can only push so much of that when you're sitting in a house because there are recourse and things like that. But when you buy a house and it sells for $300,000, then they say, oh, you're getting taxed on $300,000. We don't have to assess it. It's just sold for that. So the big jumps in property revenues for a township or a county or a city is when a house is sold. That's why they've, that's why, why do you think they've made it so easy to borrow money and we need everybody to have a house? They don't want everybody to have a house. They want people constantly buying and selling into new houses. So they constantly get automatic reassessments for property taxes for the municipal debt that they know they can't pay. It's the only way they can do it. It's create a Ponzi scheme with trading properties and artificial raising of the property price. But the guy that wins is the guy that buys his house in 1990 and never left. It's 2015. He's been there 25 years. He's paying a mortgage based on 1990, and he's doing it with a 2015 income. And even if it's been a shitty increase in income, it's been something. And even if it was a stagnancy, it still costs him less than it costs you to buy that house today. 
And it's getting harder and harder to get into that position for multiple reasons. One is the entire leeching of value from the economy by the power elite. That's one. Two is the pyramid scheme of telling people to buy a new home every three to four years. This is your starter house. When, when, when I was a kid, a starter house was a place that a couple bought to start their life, and they built onto the house. Today, a starter house is, well, it's not quite as trendy of an area or as good of schools as we want, but since Muffy's not pregnant yet, and it'll be several years at least after that before little Muffy Jr. goes to kindergarten, we have time to move to the trendy area, and we'll, we'll do a little bit with this house, and we'll let appreciation kick in, and we'll sell it, and we'll move off and buy a new home. And then we'll do it again and again and again, right? And that creates this artificial acceleration of the value of property, and it funnels money into the municipalities. What happened with the mortgage bubble and the, and the real estate property bust wasn't just an overall economic weakness. It wasn't just bad debts. It was that game coming to a head where people started to say, you know, I'm not just moving up anymore. So not only were people foreclosed upon and dumping their houses, not only was the tax revenue lost there, but there was no one standing by waiting to buy that big house down the road. People started to go back in their minds to a saver mindset, and that destroyed an economy built on a 100% growth-required mindset. So your economy is built on a growth requirement. Your economy cannot be static. It has to be a growth economy for all of the bullshit the government has created to function. That's why they will do anything to insinuate growth. They don't care. But the amount of growth they can push into a system where almost everything you own requires it is petered out. This is like the car that by the time you hit 200 miles an hour, it takes almost 100% more of everything to go from 200 to 210. Where it took very little to go from 20 to 30. That's where we're at. We've got the throttle down, and they're trying to optimize every little bit of aerodynamics in the car to get one more mile an hour out of it, and they can't do it. They can't do it. But it's not stopping. It's not going backwards. It's not even slowing down. Or if it does, it's slowing down by percentage of a percentage of a point. Okay? This is where we are. This is the long, slow emergency. This is the erosion of everything that we work for as Americans. And to be fair, everything that most people in the first world are working for. These states that say they have good economies. Now, they don't have good economies. They have budget surpluses. They don't have budget surpluses. To say that somebody like California has a budget surplus now is one of the most disingenuous full of bullshit things you've ever heard in your life if you have any idea about California's future obligations and what their unfunded liabilities in the future are. It's like saying, I have a surplus of a million dollars, and right now you only have to pay $100,000 a month and you're going to be able to maintain a million-dollar bank account. Okay? Well, that's a surplus. Not if next September you're going to owe $20 million and you have no idea where you're going to get the $20 million from. It's not a surplus. It's an ad inadequacy that hasn't yet been realized. This is the entire United States economy. But our economy is fluid and dynamic and dramatically resilient. So what you're seeing is, again, it is like a snake eating itself from the tail. Yet it's getting other nourishment at the same time. And as it's growing as it eats itself, it's almost in like a loop lock. 
and it just kind of rashes and thrives. Rashes and, and, and thrashes around. And every once in a while it hurts somebody, and every once in a while it does something good. That's where we're at. And that means that the time left to capitalize on the growth trends in the economy is shrinking. And that means it's time to get off your ass and do it now while you still can. You know, I had uh, some young people ask me questions earlier this year and say it's harder now than it ever was before. And it's true and it's false. Right? There's so many ways to create businesses. There's no so many ways to create wealth that didn't exist 20, 30, 40 years ago. But they do have a point, and the big point is, in 1950, if you bought a house, in 1950, if you bought a house, even if you could barely afford it, but you could, by 1960, you were looking really good. If you'd go through those 10 years and get yourself through them, you were almost assured that if that's where you wanted to live the rest of your life, you were going to be okay. As long as you were a hard-working individual willing to do what you needed to do, you could you could make it happen. And even when the stagflation and nightmares of the 70s happened, the people that got kicked in the ass were not the people that bought a home in 1950 or 1960. They were people that bought a house last year. Today, you buy a house in 10 years, you may not be there yet. You may not have crossed, it might be 15, 20. And every year, the spread there gets bigger. Every year, the spread gets bigger. The amount of money needed to be saved so that you can live off your investment, grows larger and larger. But the reality is, you're not what you've been led to believe. You're, you've been led to believe, through because you exist in a world of perpetual growth, that you're a being of perpetual growth in needs. You are a being of perpetual growth spiritually, emotionally, and mentally, if you'll treat yourself that way. But in needs, you're a, a, you're a being of static growth. You don't need more than you did yesterday. Today. You don't. You need the same amount of food and the same amount of water and the same amount of shelter and the same amount of energy. Are you starting to hear the words? What are they? The survival needs. You need the same. So you need to build the needs today and either have them covered or cost at today's cost as quickly as possible and build tomorrow's revenue stronger than today's. You need to start treating your life like what it should be treated like your entire life. And many of you are 50 and have never done it yet, like a business. We have to run our lives like businesses. We have to make decisions like we're a business. Hey, I'm going to have to lay people off. That's code for, hey, my kids aren't going to have food. All right? They're going to have to skip a meal. That's what when You run your, your family like a business, you start to realize that. It's like in a business, I would have to lay off 10% of the workforce. In a family, we're skipping lunch three days a week. You start making smarter decisions really freaking fast. Stop waiting for the collapse. And pay attention to the buildings crumbling to your left and right right now. You're in it. You can't see it because it's slow. It's slow. And it is designed to enslave the people of this country so that a few generations from now, they truly do wake up as slaves in the land of their forefathers conquered. That's exactly what it is. And many of the people are already there, but you can still get out of it. How much longer that remains, I don't know. But it's time to get your ass to work. Stop waiting for collapse. Stop being afraid of collapse. You know, here's another thing. They say that when people go to war, if you're afraid you're not going to make it, you're not going to make it. Okay? 
that only by going with the attitude of I'm going to make it, and I don't even give a damn if I do or I don't. I'm just going to do what needs to be done. Do your odds of making it go up. Is it? It's not a guarantee you're going to get it. You're going to get come back. But it's a hell of a lot more likely. That's how this has to be. You have to start going out and being bold and decisive. Building a life. Building a business. Building a lifestyle. Now. There's no more waiting. Waiting is for quitters. Waiting is for losers. There will never be a better time than now to start building your life for the better tomorrow. Ever. There, in fact, here, let me put it to you this bluntly. Right now, this second, is the best time that there will ever be for you to make the decision to start building your life for the better. Right now, this second, it's not quite as good as it was one second ago. Right now, this second, it's not quite as good as it was that last second, and a little bit less. It's getting worse every second. So get on with it. Let's take another one. Let's move on to another glaring-in-our-face emergency. Um, just the unsustainable populations of certain parts of this country um, California being ground zero for seeing it come to light right now and I want to read Justin's question and, and, and talk about this at a higher level once I do Justin says I've just revised I have, I have a revised question regarding water in California in light of recent events my question is what would you do to increase the amount of usable water in California JPL and NASA said that California needs an additional 10 trillion gallons of water to get out of its water crisis, which sounds and is daunting. However, did a quick calculation end, there are 163,696 square miles in California, 640 acres to the square mile, 325,851.4 gallons equals one acre foot. So just one foot of rain across California is 34.1 trillion gallons. So basically, California only needed, according to this study, four inches of rain if it could have a 100% collection. That's kind of tough. In fact, 10 trillion gallons comes out to approximately just 15% of the water rained down on us being used by California. So either that is a gross underestimate, meaning the total amount that they say we need, or California needs, or we're doing a bad job of collecting water. Considering where I live, everything rained down just gets drained to the ocean. It seems to me it could be a limitless amount of rain could come down. Since 0% is collected, we'd always have a drought. Since Jeff Lawton was able to green the Dead Sea, I was curious as to what you would do for California. I understand this question might not fit into the insurrection direction you're going these days, but I think you'd like the challenge of the thought experiment anyway. Yeah, it actually leads right into insurrection because no one's going to fix it for you, so you better fix it for your damn self. Okay? So I just actually proposed a very similar thought-provoking question on the Regrarians group on um, on Facebook, which was started by Darren Daughtry, who is uh, one of the the pioneers in key line systems around the world operating in, in wet, southwestern Australia, one of the driest, most arid climates, very similar to the climate of California. And a lot of interesting feedback came in. Here's how I feel about California. California is not having a drought. Okay, first of all, it's not a drought. It's a natural cycle of precipitation in a downward part of the cyclical cycle. That's what it is. We have become accustomed to, 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 uh, to judging rainfall on an annual basis because 
That's the four seasons. That's when we grow shit. Hey, dumbass, that's how we, you know, measure everybody's age. What's wrong with you? Of course we do. Well, here's the problem with that. The earth doesn't give a shit. The earth doesn't care about our puny understanding of time. It doesn't. Rainfall would be best aggregated for averages across 100 years. 100 years. To look at, are we in a drought? You'd have to actually look at 100 years of information and say, is the last 100 years significantly lower than if we measured a 100-year period from 50 years ago to 150 years back? We look at those two blocks. Is there a significant reduction in rain over it? And you might have to look through 10, 10 centuries, which we don't have data for, by the way. Yeah, all the data they say, well, we know how much it rained in California and uh, before it was even called California. No, you don't. Most of these clowns don't know how much it rained in California yesterday if it rained at all. Uh, I've seen newscasters give you the temperature with an outdoor forecast with a thermometer behind their head, and I can read the damn thermometer behind their head, and they got the number wrong. But if we did, if we did want to know, is this a drought? That's what we need to be looking at, 100-year cycles. When we design permaculture systems, we design earthworks, dams and swales and overflows and redundancies based on the 100-year rain event. Why do you think that is? Because it's probably about the minimum period of time with any accurate data cluster. It's like a dope chart. You have these some, you need reliable data points. You can't just say because, well, for the last 10 years we averaged, uh, 28 inches of rain. And this year we, we got 20. It's a drought. It's a drought in effect. But is it really, so first of all, I don't think it's a drought. I think it's a cycle of precipitation that we are unprepared for. That we call a drought. Okay. The next thing is, it is absolutely an over-excessive use of resources. There's pictures going around of California drought right now. And they're showing lakes where these huge suspension bridge goes across the lake and there's no water left under the bridge. Okay, us building a lake where there was never a lake. Impounding water that nature never intended to be impounded. And then draining that with 38 million people watering lawns does not show a drought it shows our inability to understand our own limitations. You got it? Okay, so before we can even start to solve the problem, we need to comprehend the problem. So the problem being presented is there's not enough rain. No. The problem is there is an inefficient and excessive use of the natural resource of fresh water in California. Why is this occurring? Number one, California is mostly desert and edge desert. It is not meant to sustain, sustain a, a population of close to 40 million people. It's not. There's too many people in California. That's why the original third ethic is setting limits to population and consumption, not the redistribution of surplus. Okay? Or the return of surplus. If we return surplus. So th that ethic alone gives you the answer two different ways. The original one, setting limits to population and consumption. They're rationing water in California. It's about freaking time. It's about freaking time. Okay, just to be blunt, if you're going to stick 38 million people in a place like that, you can't just have unused, you know, unlimited use of water. And, you know, telling people what days they can water their lawn, that's not a water, really a water restriction. Use your brains. So, 
there's that. And then the right other way of stating that ethic is the return of surplus. See, redistrib- this is why I actually make a big deal about the whole people rewriting the third ethic. It's not just about the stupidity of politics being stuck into a science, which causes problems in many ways in our modern world. But it, it's about the fact that it breaks the system. It doesn't work that way. California is an example of what happens when you redistribute surplus. You take the surplus from other parts of the country and redistribute it to California, and you create an unsustainable population growth. And when that surplus has been expired, and when you're taking it from somebody else for long enough, sooner or later you always run out, then the population realizes it's, it, it, it's, it's peril at that point. So that's how we got there, was redistributing surplus instead of reinvesting it, and without taking into consideration exactly how many people can we support in the middle of a freaking desert? How big should we build these cities to be here? What level of population should be in a place like this? And look, I'm not for calling, calling left coasters here, okay? Right? I'm not saying the solution is let's, let's go out and, and have a, a coal hunt or something on, on people that live on the west coast. But the reality is that many people can't live there the way they've been living there. They can't. And nature is now saying, you see, This is the way it is. I know you don't like it. You can wail. You can gnash your teeth. You can blame the rich people. You can tax shit. I don't care. You ain't getting no more water. You're done. You've taken more than you can have. So now that we understand the problem, now we can find the solution to the problem. Number one, California needs, if it is going to survive as a state, which is not necessarily what I'm looking for, but if it is going to, and I was advising the government of California, needs to capture every freaking drop of rainwater possible and hold it for use. Every drop possible and hold it for use. The solution is not another giant impounded dam. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very small Acreage on the surface, very deep ponds, everywhere they can put them in is one way. Because the evaporation is so less significant in a deep, small pond than a great, big, shallow one, relatively speaking. So yes, your giant dam might have 80 foot deep by the dam breast, but if it's 800,000 acres, that's 800,000 acres of surface water exposed, just evaporating its ass off in the California sun every day. Where if you have small, very deep in relation to surface area ponds, it's a much better way to store energy. It's like using a long-term storage battery versus a, a short-term storage battery that, by the way, has a little trickle charge against, or a little trickle loss against it, right? A little phantom uh, usage going on. It's at least keeping the time displayed. That's what a big dam is, right? It's like a shitty battery where the thing's blinking 12 o'clock and at least draining some power all the time, right? Where a small pond that's deep is like one of these high-end, super-duper lithium-ion batteries in a perfect storage condition. Still drains over time, but nowhere near as fast, okay? And it's much more reliable and much more dependable. So that's the first thing is earthworks like crazy and capture all the water that we can. We need to be harvesting rainwater from the roofs of all of these buildings in California. And the rain barrel is a grand hallucination. A grand hallucination in the words of Mark Shepard. You put a 50-gallon rain barrel on the side of your house. You get a quarter inch of rain. 
and the barrel overflows in about 13 seconds. Okay, Not quite that fast, but damn close. You get a couple inches of rain, and you've collected a mouse fart you know, out of a whale fart is what you've done. So it, it doesn't hold enough water to make it valid. So giving people rain barrels in California where it doesn't rain that much in the first place is kind of pointless. How long can you water your yard with 50 gallons of water? Even with drip irrigation, etc. So, I mean, the, the minimum storage tank size that we need to be incentivizing California homeowners to put in is about 500 gallons. And that's really not enough on sizable structures. But it would be a start. It'd be interesting for someone to calculate the number of uh, buildings in California. And if each just simply collected 500 gallons of water on average, how much water that would be a year. That would be a very interesting number to know. Because most of the water that falls either is quickly evaporated or quickly runs away. Right? So we get rid of the water and go, where's the water? So that's, that's another thing that needs to happen. And then, I mean, honestly, California needs to look at does it believe that it can continue to grow at the rates that it's grown for all of these years in population? And the problem, see, this is where the natural resource problem comes to a head against the artificial resource problem of the state oligarchy. And this is why the last one and this one are intrinsically linked, even though you wouldn't think so on the surface. So what I told you in the economic portion today was the government and the economy of the United States require growth to function. To pay Social Security, there have to be more people working tomorrow than there are today. That's not happening anymore. Okay. Well, California is a microcosm. Remember, this is a this is a federal republic, and what's left of it is the 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 geoeconomic structure and the socio political economic structure of a republic of republic states, where each republic state is a microcosm of the total republic. In fact, our states are required to have a republican form of government, right? So they all mimic the federal government, and they are required to, okay? Now, that means California is in the same position. The only way that all of the economics of California continue to operate is if there's more people in California tomorrow than today. That's the only way. Okay? And the mentality is all we have to do is bunker up and get through this disaster, and sooner or later the rain will come back. And when it does, everything will be okay. This is why I've said, to the chagrin of many, it is not a drought that is the problem. If the rain goes back to normal tomorrow and stays normal for 10 years and everything about the way they're operating in California continues the way that it is, the problem is not solved. It will continue to get worse. If the rain went in a surplus by 10% for the next 10 years, it would not solve the problem. The drought is making the problem more obvious but the drought is not the problem. The, 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 the failure to use the resource correctly, the dependence on a system of stealing resources from other states, a redistribution model, right, where you're the receiver of the redistribution. See, this is why redistribution doesn't work. Initially, it harms the person you steal from, but in the end, it does greater harm to the person that you redistribute to. Because California just built a false narrative 
of the lifestyle in California that cannot exist without that redistribution. So as that redistribution ability begins to wear down, and it can, it can only get worse from here. And this is the same as Las Vegas. Las Vegas is in the same boat here. Just California is a much bigger drain on this. So California has to figure out, how do we, how do we be, remain economically viable without a continued extensive growth curve like we've enjoyed since the 1960s? And that's not going to happen. That's why you have to solve your own problems. But those are the two things that have to happen. So the population growth needs to be cut. And probably it needs to decline. So people in California will begin, I mean, it's already happened. I mean, all you got to do is price a U-Haul from Dallas to Los Angeles, and then price a U-Haul from Los Angeles to Dallas. You'll pay about twice as much to rent a one-way rental from L.A. to Dallas as Dallas to L.A. Because if they rent the, the U-Haul from L.A., from Dallas to L.A., they know it's going to go to L.A., and they know it's probably going to eventually come back, right? But they, but they know if it goes from L.A. to Dallas, it might never come back. So logistically for U-Haul, it's a problem. They've got to figure out how do we keep U-Hauls in California for all the people that are leaving. I mean, that shows you the whole story right there. But where are they going to go? I mean, it's easy to sit here in Texas and poke fun of California. We are so close, my friends, in North Texas to this same problem. Dallas and Fort Worth are not in deserts. Austin's not in a desert. San Antonio's not quite in a desert. Houston has a lot of rainfall. Okay, Houston's going to be okay, water-wise. But Dallas and everything that is Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth, the Mid-Cities, Plano, Richardson, all of that stuff, huge, 6.2 million people. Austin, the capital, and San Antonio all exist at the edge of a transition to desert, and they're all sucking water from northern and eastern Texas, and that can only go so long, too. So these areas in Texas, because the economy is better are going through their own dynamic growth rate now. And they're also operating on a redistribution model. The time for Texas to enact the solutions that I'm saying California should be enacting, which would be primarily the effective capture and utilization of the rain that does fall, is now. But governments have shown that they don't get around to it until the crisis is in your face. And then they always blame somebody else. It's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's fault. So greedy people up there in Washington and Oregon, they don't want to give you their water. They don't think you have a right to water. We have a fundamental human right to water, right? Okay? Those evil bastards in Colorado damming up the river, it's their fault, right? No. No, it's that stupid fish. It's the fish's fault. They would just turn the water pumps back on. and we. No. See, the problem is that California was given an incredible blessing of natural resources and has failed to properly understand those limitations that come with those resources and failed to capitalize on those resources uh, properly and failed to shepherd those resources. Because having higher smog emission limits for a car doesn't fix this problem. A carbon tax doesn't fix this problem. The only thing that fixes this problem is to understand what do you have to work with and how do you make that become enough to do what you need. So I can't fix California's problem because California isn't willing to fix its own problem. California's method of fixing the problem has now been to tell people you have to use 25% less water. How exactly are they going to do this? 
Do you think they're going to just, well, you know what they'll do? They'll charge you more if you go over your allotment. 25% less than what? Than what I used last month or what you used last month? 25% less than what? Does that mean if I've been a real water pig for the past 10 years that I still get to use a shitload of water? Sounds like it. Right? It almost sounds like a carbon tax. People that do the most pollution get the most credits and get to make the most money on the supposed tax through trading the credits back and forth. Hmm. Sounds like the same thing. See, government solutions never address the problem. They always attempt to create justice. Okay? And the problem with justice is it's not applicable everywhere. Not every situation is about justice. Okay? Somebody getting beaten As a victim, there's a justice equation to be to level there. There's a place to yes, you can fix that with justice. Rain not falling at the level you want it to is not something you can create justice for. But government doesn't know how to solve that problem. Government exists as a system that divides a people and says whatever side you're on is right and it's the other side's fault. That won't fix this. This is a civilization expanding beyond its limits. That's what this is. And it's happening there, and we're seeing it there. And a drought is a good metaphor for this. So let's say that you lived along a lake, and you lived along a deep embanked part of the lake. And way far away from you, miles and miles away, there were people that lived in a cove, a very shallow cove of the lake. And you started to see the water dry up for them, and their whole cove went dry. And your shoreline got a foot or two longer. But, hey, doesn't matter. Water's still right there. You're feeling pretty good. But those people in the cove are the canary in the coal mine. That is going to sooner or later affect you too. That's where we're at. Places like California and Las Vegas and the the, the mountain states that, that get less rainfall than the rest of us, they're showing us the initial excessive use of resources. And it's not just water. It's soil. Our farming practices make Topsoil, the number one export of the United States of America. We export, by tonnage, more topsoil into the ocean than any other commodity that we export in any other way, for or not for profit, doesn't matter. The financial loss represented by how much topsoil goes down the Mississippi River, taking along with it excessive amounts of, of nitrogen fertilizer into the ocean, is, is astronomical. You can probably measure it in the trillions of dollars. I bet you we lost more economic viability through the exportation of topsoil last year than our, than our, than our national deficit was. How long, see, you don't see it up front. So how long is that sustainable? That's what we have, that's why when I talk about permaculture stuff, you're like, that's not my thing. I just want to say mountain house or whatever. Mountain house ain't going to fix this. Mountain house is for acute emergencies. This is not acute. This is symptomatic. This is chronic. That's the world we're living in today. California is just showing you your own future. I live in the swamp. That can't happen here. But what resource are you dependent upon as a society that's being brought into your state, your region, your county from a redistribution standpoint? 
And it might just look different, but you're in the same level of catastrophe. Because in the end, if you don't have water, you're dead. If you don't have food, you're dead. If you don't have shelter, you're dead. If you don't have a viable, thriving community, you have the bad kind of anarchy. Society's failing right now. You're seeing it there. To fix this problem isn't just about the water. It's about fixing a sick society that does not comprehend its own limitations. I can always have more. I can always have more. I can always have more. No. No, you can't. You can't always have more. You can always build systems that will give you more than you need. But if you want more, then you need to take on the umbrella of responsibility of providing what you want more of for yourself. So if I knew how to get this country to do that, or even 38 million people in California to do that as an example, I'd be all over it. But I really don't know. So the short-term stopgap solution is much better rain harvesting. That's, that's something. But you know what that does? Kicks the can. It kicks the can. And maybe that's the best we can do right now in California is a can kick. Till people get their shit together and figure it out. But I, I, you know, I've seen people say, what they need is an inexpensive, uh, effective desalinization thing for the ocean. You just take water from the ocean. <sighs> I, I guess we should start figuring out how to grow plants in places where we've salted the earth, too. That's, yeah. Not gonna happen, guys. It's, uh, can kicks usually result in a bigger problem. You know, it's not kicking the can for the purpose of solving the underlying problem. It's let's kick the can, ignore the problem, it'll be somebody else who'll be old and dead by then. That's the goal of government. That's why government doesn't fix problems. Next up, I have a very interesting one, especially for the people that always say things like, oh, in a libertarian society, how would we solve problems like building roads and schools? And what about police? Well, we just have private police forces. That can't work, especially if you start talking about a stateless society. Um, apparently it can even work when you still have a government, at least in one place. And, uh, you know, that's a start. And that's, that's what we just need to do is be able to start something and prove that it's viable. So right now I'm reading an article on The Blaze that was sent to me by Leslie. And the headline is, Texas Town Gets Rid of Police Department, Hires Seal Security, Guess What Reportedly Happened to Crime. Let me read this to you. In 2012, the community of Sharpston, Texas, made the controversial decision not to renew its contract with the local police department and instead hire a private security firm to combat crime. Well, that sounds crazy, right? Since SEAL Security Solutions took over law enforcement in Sharpstown, crime has reportedly dropped by 61% in just 20 months. James Alexander, Director of Operations for SEAL Security Solutions, said, Since we've been in there, an independent crime study they've had done indicates we've reduced crime by 61%. In addition to the apparent increase in efficiency, the private firm is reportedly saving taxpayers roughly $200,000 each year, even though the community is getting more patrol officers than before. Quote, On a constable patrol contract, it's either 70-30 or 80-20, meaning they say they patrol your community 70% of the time, while 30% of the time they use running calls out of your area or writing reports, Alexander said. He continued, the second thing that drastically reduces the crime is that we do directed patrols. 
Meaning we don't just put an officer out there and say, here, go patrol. We look at recent crime stats and we work off those crime stats. So if we have hot spots in those areas, say, for a month, we focus and concentrate our efforts around those hot spots. The SEAL officers also don't receive the same protection as we are in the private sector, according to Alexander. He argues that leads to better accountability because they have to worry about keeping their jobs. Of course, privatizing police forces has raised concerns as well, the Washington Post reports. First of all, isn't it interesting that it raises concerns for people in Washington, what the hell people in Texas are doing? I have a very interesting quote for you in just a second on that. Something I've told you, but I didn't know somebody stated it far more eloquent than me a long time ago. Anyway, but here's where the Washington Post reports. The growth is mirrored nationally in the ranks of private police who increasingly patrol corporate campuses, neighborhoods, and museums as demand for private security has increased and police services have been cut in some places. The trend has raised concerns in Virginia and elsewhere because these armed officers often receive a small fraction of the training and oversight of their municipal counterparts. Arrests of private police officers and incidents involving SCOPs overstepping their authority have also raised concerns. Do you think privatizing the police force is a good idea? Hey, you know what? Some of these private police people have committed things that are considered abuses of power. That means we can't ha wait because it never happens with the public police department, does it? See, this is again the Nirvana fallacy. If I can show anything that's ever happened bad while people were relying on these untrained private security people to secure their neighborhoods, that proves that it is fallible and therefore not a valid solution. Well, here's a problem with public law enforcement. Ah, there's always going to be some problems, you know. We do the best we can. It's acceptable here, but not there. Nirvana fallacy. Now, I just have a question for you. Do you think if the St. Louis Metrolink people hired SEAL security to provide security services on their Metrolink, that it might have been better for the man we started off the show talking about today who got his face punched in by a sorry-ass piece of shit? You think one of these guys would have stood there and done nothing? Or, you know, I heard the security guy, right, the conductor slash security guy for DC Metro Lake saying, please take your seats. <laughs> yeah, that worked out real good, didn't it? So I wonder, what does that guy get paid? The please take your seats guy with the, mi the, the microphone. Like, what do we pay him? So it's probably not that you could put a security person on these trains for the same price, but I bet you could put a security person on this train that could, you know, work the microphone and push the button, right, that this guy does, uh, for far less than putting, let's say, one officer on every third train. Like, all of them could be this type, like, and it could be private. Like, the whole thing could be sold off as an asset if it makes any money. Huh. Just, it's possible. It's at least possible. All I know is, <clears throat> if I ever built something big enough to exist and incorporate as a town, right, or a township or something like that, where it existed, like it wasn't just like a, a, a community, it actually got large enough that we could, for our own protection from the state, say, we're creating a town. This is what I would do before I hire police. Are you kidding me? 
that if I don't like these guys, I fire them and get somebody else. Once I have a police force in place, how easy is it for me to say, you know what, don't like the way you guys are doing this, I want a police force, but I don't want you guys anymore. Not I want to fire an officer or the chief, I want to redo it, I want to just start over. I just want to, this just isn't getting it done the way we want it done. We don't feel that you're looking out after people, we feel you're victimizing people, we don't feel you're doing, whatever it is. I just want to, this, all I got to do is just call somebody else. Get us a quote. I get bids from five or six companies every year. Quote what you can do, what you can do better, what you can do differently, what technologies you're using. You know? We don't want somebody here writing tickets to people that are five over, since that's not what you're going to be doing anyway. We want people protecting life, liberty, and property of the members of our town. It's the way I would go. But there could be abuses. See, that objection's only valid. If first there are no abuses in the current system, right? Okay, so that's all. Okay, that's the first invalidation of the objection. The next would be that well, there are abuses in the current system, but they're few and far between, and they're minor. Okay, dead. That's not that's not true either. And that if there is an abuse, which one's easier to correct? Which one's easier to correct? If if we if I hired you know Seal Security to be the protection service for Jack Spearcoville. And it comes to the attention of, of me and our residents that there's a certain officer working for SEAL security that is either a lazy ass not doing his job or he's snooping around people's garages or he's extorting money or whatever he's doing that we've seen police do from time to time. Um, How much does it take, other than a phone call, to our account representative to say, you know, Officer Sampson isn't working out here? Now, we're going to tell you everything he did, and you might choose to not fire him or whatever, but he doesn't work here anymore. Well, we have procedures internally. No, you don't have procedures internally for this, guys. We pay your bill. We don't want this guy. We want him off. Just like he was a landscape contractor. We just don't want him anymore. That fast. That fast. That's the big thing, is it's so much easier to correct. So much easier to correct. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean you can't find flaws in it. Are the flaws bigger, though? And are they, are they more or less difficult to correct? That's how you get to a better solution. You don't say, unless it's perfect, we can't do it. You say, is it better than what we have? But, you know, I mean, the whole concept that law enforcement, you know, steals from the public or whatever, that's just not valid, is it? Funny you should ask that through me, because I got this one from the New York Times from an awful lot of people, um, including Jake, I think was the first person who sent it to me. Inquiry of Silk Road website spurred agents own illegal acts, officials say. On the so-called dark web, drug dealing and other illicit sales have thrived in recent years. The authorities have said through hidden websites like Silk Road and the hard-to-trace digital currencies like Bitcoin. On Monday, the government charged that in the shadows of an undercover investigation of Silk Road, a notorious black market site, two federal agents sought to enrich themselves by exploiting the very secrecy that made the site so difficult for law enforcement officials to penetrate. The agents, Carl Mark 
Force the Fourth, who worked for the Drug Enforcement Administration, and Sean W. Bridges, who worked for the Secret Service, have resigned amid growing scrutiny. And on Monday, they were charged with money laundering and wire fraud. Mr. Forrest was also charged with theft of government property and conflict of interest. A criminal complaint unsealed on Monday in federal court in San Francisco outlined the allegations against two former agents. While investigating Silk Road, Mr. Forrest stole and converted his own personal use a sizable amount of bitcoins, the digital currency that was used by buyers and sellers on the website, and which he obtained in his undercover capacity, the complaint said. Rather than turning those Bitcoin over to the government, Forrest deposited them into his own personal accounts, it added. Mr. Bridges, meanwhile, who was described as a computer forensics expert, diverted to a personal account more than 800,000 in digital currency that he gained control of during the Silk Road investigation, the authorities said. And you can read the rest if you want to. Here's my point. Here's my point. This is a DEA agent and a Secret Service agent. See, and they tell you we can't have private security because they don't get enough training and background. Who the hell gets more background in uh, inspection, training, and oversight than the freaking Secret Service? Seriously. Who do, you, who do you think is vetted a little bit higher level? Secret Service agent or your local town Roscoe P. Coltrane? Huh? Seriously. Don't you think a DEA agent is vetted a little more highly than you, you, your, your local police officer, your local sheriff's deputy? They need a little bit more training, you know. But see, we have to have concerns about the price. See, here's the thing. These guys got nailed. How many of these people got away with it? This guy is a computer forensics expert. Apparently, he's not very good at what he does. <laughs> It's pretty amazing to me. The hypocrisy of the state. Oh, there's concerns about private security policing campuses. Oh, companies providing their own security. Oh, my word. We need more money for more police officers so these poor people don't have to rely on these untrained people that could be corrupt. See, in the private sector, especially in states without heavy unionization, people that are corrupt and get caught are fired immediately. And usually long before, see, the thing is, there's no way that people that would do this haven't done other things that should have put them on the radar. In fact, it's probably how they got caught. But you get that big on the radar with a private company and they just terminate your employment. You're not fit to be here anymore. And then the person has to go seek out other employment and they start having strikes against them. And they start to realize they can either do things right or They'll run out of places to get strikes. They'll be out. So I think that this is an area where we believe that no one can do it except the government, where it may be the case that at least in certain areas, even now, the private sector could do it better. Just saying. As I finish up today, I want to finish up with a quote by Oscar Wilde. Um, this comes from Justin. Justin says, can't recall if I ever heard you mention this quote on the air. But I think it's succinctly awesome. Listen to this. Selfishness is not living your life as you wish. It is asking others to live their lives as you wish.
So that's what I'm talking about. When, when people in Washington, D.C. are concerned about a private security company in Texas, that's wanting others to live their lives as you wish. That is selfish. What I've been trying to get through to this audience since 2008 when I started the show is focusing on yourself is not wrong. Believing in yourself is not wrong. Seeing to your own needs before worrying about others is not wrong. It's not selfish. It's called responsibility. You, you, you can't expect a person to make a meaningful contribution to the world when they haven't yet even developed the capacity to be able to put three meals on the table for themselves in a day. That it is focusing on ourselves, which is the most selfless thing we can do. Because it then requires of us to be responsible for our own lives and happiness and resources, etc. And to not think that it's somebody else's responsibility to provide to us, or somebody else's responsibility to give us what we want, or somebody else's responsibility to live the way we think they should. If you, if you look at it, the most divisive things in our society today, the, the pointless banter and bullshit that goes on over and over and over extensively in society today, the fighting for laws and should the government do this or should the government do that or should this be illegal or that be illegal, it has people the most angry with each other, are things that come down to that. You know, the, 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 the things like marijuana and gay marriage. If, if you have an opinion that the government needs to be involved in either of those, regardless of what side you're on, what you're saying is that you want to force others to live the way that you think they should. Where I think that, like, these people that are throwing a fit over some stupid pizza joint in Indiana about that very issue. These guys just raised like a half a million dollars in support for a problem that doesn't exist. Seriously, what gay couple has pizza for their wedding reception? I mean, <laughs> what problem did this, this company have? They came out and created a fake problem. They created fake unity. They created a whole bunch of stupid people sending them money for a problem that didn't exist, and now they have a bunch of money, they probably made more money in the last week than they've made selling pizzas in a year, ever in their lives, or ever will. Why? Because people are easily manipulated. Now, it's easy to sit back, if you're on the other side of that issue, and mock the people that sent the money for a problem that didn't exist, the legal defense of an issue that they didn't have to legally defend, okay? <laughs> so they just keep the money now, that's great. Um, <laughs> but, Why were they able to do it? The implied outrage of the other side, making a big deal about it. See, this is where I keep saying, active apathy is your greatest weapon. What if all of the people, all of the people that are so pro-gay rights, when this company had said, we won't cater a gay reception, went, yeah, whatever. Okay. They would have got no press, no one would have cared, and they wouldn't have half a million dollars now. <laughs> that's what happens when people behave selfishly when people behave selfishly the most selfish among us become enriched the problem with being selfish is unless you're the most selfish you always lose the guy that out selfishes you gets more right? and it's wanting other people to live your way where my belief is that the government shouldn't be involved in any of this stuff 
You should live your life your way. I should live my life my way. If I don't want to serve gay people or black people or red people or women or whatever in my business, I should be able to make that dumbass decision and put myself out of business. Because that's what will happen today. Right? People always want to take it back. Well, what about the Civil Rights Act? And back when people had you know, no colored signs on restaurants in the South and whatever. Okay, well, how did we get that problem? Government itself created that problem. Why didn't other nations, even nations that had slavery at one time, have that problem? Because they didn't create the problem the way we did. I guess the closest analog that did have a problem and worse was South Africa. But other than those two countries, our two countries, that divide doesn't exist. You go to England, you don't have the black and white divide that we have in the United States. You just don't. You don't see it. Why? Because we try to enforce the will that we have for the way that we're going to live on somebody else. And letting all the politics go. It's just an interesting way to understand politics. Again, it comes down to what is best for you and your family and your community and in your life. And it is best that you're successful. It is best that you have the things that you need. It is best that you have many of the things that you want. It is best that you're able to provide for others around you as you see fit. It is best that you have total control over your own individual life. So why do you think it is that a government and a social structure that the government put in place would send you a message every day that the people that do that are evil, selfish bastards? You should be a hard-working, good citizen of this country. Pay your fair share. Work hard. But don't focus on yourself. You don't focus on everybody else. You don't be selfish, do you? You have to share, Billy. <laughs> How about Billy decides who he shares with and when? See, sharing only occurs between equals. Sharing can only occur between equals. If I share my, if I buy a six pack of beer and you come over to my house and I give you a beer, I'm sharing with you as an equal. That's sharing. If I have a six pack of beer, And Tom decides Jack doesn't need six beers. That, that Bill needs some beers too. So Tom points a gun at my face, takes three of my beers, gives two of them to Bill, and takes one for himself. That's not sharing. That's what government calls sharing. That's not how it works. Actually, he takes four. He gives, he gives Bill two. It takes two for himself. He calls it sharing. He says, see, now you're, now you guys are equal. Except he's doing it to hundreds and hundreds of people, so he's getting more than everybody else. That's selfish. And that's where sharing cannot occur unless it's being done between equals voluntarily. That's the only way there can be sharing. So forcing someone to, to give up part of what they have for somebody else isn't sharing. It's theft. It's coercion. And it, again, it involves, I feel that you should live the way that I think you should live. And often what you find is the people that are most of the bent of asking others to live their lives as they wish don't live their own lives that way. You ever notice that? See, that's like the epitome of selfishness. Not only am I refusing to live my life as I wish, right, And expecting someone else to provide me what I need. Not only am I dictating what other people should do and how other people should live and how other people should sacrifice, but I myself am not willing 
to sacrifice at their level. And we you know what we call that today? A good, honest, hardworking American citizen. It's part of the system and doing his best for his family. And we take the person who says, you know what? Piss off. Not going to participate in your system of coercion. You're not taking what I have unless there's no way I can prevent it. You're only getting what you get and you're getting no more. I'll decide who I give to, when I give to them, and how I give to them. And the first thing I'm going to do is make sure that my family doesn't need to be in the line looking for help, but at the head of the line being able to provide help. And until such time as we are strong enough to be at the front of the line, we'll be at neither the back nor the front. We'll be providing, we won't be providing the help or asking for it. We'll do what we need to do to get where we have to be, and then we will help who we choose. Selfish bastard. Look at him acquiring all that wealth. Look how much he has. Probably doesn't have that much. Just looks like more than the person who has almost nothing because they're so worried about everybody else, they never get on with living their own damn life. Yes, TSP community. Very seriously, I say to you now, that it is not selfish to focus on yourself, but it's very selfish not to. It's very selfish not to. I know it flies in the face of everything you've been conditioned to believe in your life. But until you help yourself, you cannot stand and help others. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to